Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner podcast on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. As we like to do on a monthly basis, we will touch on the factors that are driving performance within the asset class, as well as offer some thoughts around a performance outlook and highlight allocation considerations for your portfolio. So joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office as well as Jim Karen, Portfolio Manager and Head of Macro on the Global Fixed Income Team with Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Leslie, I know you will be leading today's conversation with Jim, so looking forward to hearing your current thinking and the conversation. Welcome to you both. Leslie, let me pass it over to you. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And again, yeah, thanks, Jim, very much for being on the call. You're right. Jim and I have known each other for, I don't want to age ourselves, but a good 20 years now and definitely a professional that I've known for a long time and I have a lot of respect for both personally and professionally. So really happy to have him on today and looking forward to hearing uh, some of his insights. So, Jim, with that said, I want to sort of kick off with, you know, the topic du jour, which has been, you know, the Fed and the Fed meeting um, over, you know, the week, week and a half ago. And I really just wanted to just sort of get your take or what was your conclusion on, this, you know, pro-cyclical reflation outlook that we've all been talking about for the past several months, and how do you see that sort of progressing going forward? Yeah, thanks, Leslie, and, you know, it's, it's uh, like you said, I've known you for a long time, and, and uh, there's a lot of mutual respect here, so I appreciate always getting a chance to chat with you. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting right now where the Fed is and, and how people are interpreting the Fed. And the way that I break this down, and I, I don't want to get too economic wonky here, but I think it is important that we define a couple of terms here. Typically, when we look at Fed policy prior to the pandemic, so this is, you know, going back to 1980 plus, um, the Fed is typically in a counter-cyclical mode, meaning that what they try to do is stay ahead of the curve, meaning that when you have growth and inflation, they try to tighten in advance before the growth and inflation get out of control, or really that the inflation gets out of control, and they try to stabilize and elongate the business cycle. So that's counter-cyclical policy. That's policy that basically is countering the cycle a little bit so that it doesn't overheat and create destructive inflation. Now, what we've been in since the pandemic, this is the first time that we've seen this in you know, over 40 years, is pro-cyclical policy. Now, pro-cyclical policy, by definition, means it's policy that reinforces the current cycle. So when we've had a lot of stimulus, as we've been recovering um, from COVID and the stimulus has been working and the economy has been recovering, people typically think that, oh, the Fed's going to hike rates. That would be counter-cyclical policy. Under their newer pro-cyclical mode right now, what they're trying to do is extend the business cycle even longer. So what they're trying to do is have policy that actually reinforces the current cycle. So what that would mean is that they stay easier, easier than normal during this particular recovery, and they allow the recovery, and they also allow inflation, and this is where we get the flexible average inflation targeting. They're allowing inflation to go above their target, above their 2%, so we think it's anywhere from 2 to 2.5%, in order to get better growth for longer, close the output gap, and, and essentially 
um, and essentially really try to ensure and bolster an economic recovery because, you know, we lost a lot of ground last year, so we have to make up for all that ground, and then we've got to catch up to trend. And I think what the Fed is doing in this pro-cyclical policy is allowing the economic recovery to continue to move uh, move along, the economy to run hot, and even allow for some higher-than-ordinary inflation to exist. So when we think about that, right, so, <clears throat> you know, we're sort of at the the halftime report now is we you know can come up to the end of the second quarter and how do you how do you sort of how would you characterize you know not only the year-to-date performance but how did how did it sort of play out versus your expectation and with that said what do you see sort of going forward in terms of the performance that we've seen both in equity and fixed income yeah, so, I, look, I mean, I, I think the equity markets have surprised a lot of people just given where we were at the beginning of the year. Um, the pandemic was still raging. We didn't expect to have a vaccine as fast as, as we got it and for it to you know work as well as it did. So what we started to see was a significant upsurge in yields. Most people at the beginning of the year had a yield forecast for the 10-year note to, to, to 10-year yields to go to 1.2%, 1.25%. That was consensus. We all know that 10-year Treasury yields went upwards of 1.75%. So what that means is that, you know, if when we look at fixed income, people were long, they were long bonds, and yields went up pretty significantly. They went up about 80 basis points. So what you've seen, in, particularly in the more high-quality fixed income sectors, um, U.S. Treasuries, um, investment grade, was that weighed on performance. Uh, but what we also think, though, is that the upsurge in yields is over. I don't. I think the highs of the year, uh, high, the highs in yield for the year are in or close to it. Meaning that I really don't see ten-year Treasury yields going really above two percent. I think we're going to stay within two percent. And the reason I say that is because when we think about what really just happened here over the past couple of months, we had inflation prints, big inflation prints. Well, we think, you know, in May and in April that the inflation's peaked, and now inflation's going to start to decline. Uh, taper, right? We all expect a taper. We all expect that maybe to get announced at some point. This is consensus. Um, sometime in September it gets announced. It doesn't get enacted until December or January of, of 2022. All of this stuff is well known. So what's the catalyst then that's going to bring yields higher? Is it inflation? Well, we think inflation's peaked. Tapering, we're all anticipating tapering. So it would have to be something else, and maybe that something else is that you know inflation lingers for a lot longer than people think. But we're not going to know that for you know probably until uh, 2022. So what I would say is that returns for the remaining part of this year you know, for fixed income, I, I think are going to be decent. Not, you know, we're not going to have the kind of year that we had, you know, last year in, in some cases. But the, uh, but, but essentially, I, I do think that you're going to be able to at least capture your coupon. I think high yield is going to do well. Um, you're going to get some probably further spread tightening. It might be marginal from here. Same thing with investment grade, some spread tightening. And you're going to be able to clip your coupon. Returns are going to be lower than ordinary. That's just the interest rate environment that we're in. But I think that the that the negative part for fixed income is is probably behind us. And now we're in trying to, to make up some lost ground over the next six months. And for equities, it's you know it's challenging. Of course, GDP is going to be strong. 
uh, cash flows are therefore going to be good, and this also means a default risk, so credit also stays um, you know, pretty strong. Uh, but cash flows, you know, moves into earnings, and and that's usually also pretty good for equities. I'm not an equity manager, but I would I would say that just broadly from a macro perspective, I would be um, upbeat on on riskier assets. So when, just just to sort of tail on to some of the comments that you made, because I think they're really interesting, and you know, it's definitely we've seen a lot of questions from our advisors on that topic. And you know, listen, CIO here, we do think interest rates rise to the end of the year. You know, we think there's a possibility of going up to that two percent by year end. But but more than likely, I think to your point, you know, into the twos would probably be a 2022 event. But you know, with that said, we can compl- I completely agree. We've got these inflation expectations that are pricing. Everyone knows that the tapering of QE is going to happen. You know, I'm just curious. We have, we have Friday's non-farm payroll. We know consensus is seven hundred thousand. The three-month average, the three-month rolling has been whatever five seventy-five or six hundred, which although below expectation is still strong. I mean, are you of the belief that these fourteen million individuals that are still in employment subsidies or the back-to-school in the fall? I'm in the classrooms with these kids will with will bring more back to the workforce. So what would alter that rate call by the end of the year that we might actually see that two percent? Do you do you think that there is a you know, a non farm type of adjustment that we might see in the fall that we've been lacking these, you know, first these past couple months? Yeah, Leslie, I think you're getting to the heart of the matter. This is this is actually this is a really good question and this is something that um I would say is, is one of the risks. This is one of the known unknowns that's out there and we have to really kind of think about this because essentially what we know um, when we look at the non-farm payroll data that there's about 7.6 million people that are that you know had jobs prior to the pandemic that don't have jobs currently so we expect a lot of people to come back into the labor force then when we look at the jolt survey jolts is job openings and labor uh, turnover survey it shows that there's 9.2 million vacancies so why is there a difference between the two? And what it starts to tell me is that there might be a skills mismatch. So we're trying to get back 7.6 million jobs from the pre-pandemic levels, but maybe some of those jobs just aren't coming back because technology has moved on. Many corporations have become more technologically savvy. There might be a different skill need to hire new people, and it's going to take a while for that to occur. So if in fact, that is the case, and we add jobs more slowly, and what that means is that labor stays in higher demand. If labor stays in higher demand, then wage inflation, you know, continues to move higher. There's nothing wrong with wage inflation moving higher, but the issue here is that from an inflation risk perspective, what, what's going to start to happen is that um, the CPI prints that we expect to start coming down may not come down as much as we think, and that inflation may not be as transitory as as we think. The other thing that that we think about here is that companies, corporations have something today that they haven't had for the last few decades, and that is pricing power. So when we look, when we analyze the free cash flows that are on company balance sheets right now, it's at very, very high levels. What that means is that if wage pressures start to move higher, corporations don't don't, don't narrow margins to, to, to remain competitive. All they do is they pass that on to the consumer. The consumer, people who are you know, getting these jobs at higher wages, plus they have a high savings rate, uh, are able to pay those higher prices. So what that means is that the pass-through with all these supply chain issues and all of these other various factors, the pass-through to, 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 to the finished good, to the, out, you know, to the final goods and services, means that you might get higher prices. And if that's the case 
And what the Fed's going to see is, yes, inflation's probably going to come down from where we are today. It's, it's, it's probably mathematically, it's going to be hard for that not to happen. Um, but it may not come down as much. And if that's the case, then we are going to start to think that inflation may not be as transitory. We're going to move up our time frame in terms of the markets thinking of when the Fed may hike. And we may have to build in a bigger inflation risk premium, which means that the back end of the curve, so tens and thirties, may start to um, may start to sell off, and that could get us up to two percent or maybe even a little bit higher. So that's a non-insignificant risk. So, in terms of that, now that we're sort of focusing on the risk component, now that you know, as you and I are well aware, given the performance that we've seen in, in this as class, both in, in you know, fixed income and equity, obviously the risk side is what a lot of our advisors or clients are looking out for because, you know, we've had a tremendous amount of monetary and fiscal accommodation. Outside of the the possibility that we push forward rate hikes and yields rise a little bit quicker than what we anticipate potentially restricting the economy, what, what other risk kind of do you see? And, and when, I, when I say that, Jim, in a global kind of sense, like what do you think could be something that really just sort of is disruptive over the next six, seven months? Well, I think we have to factor in China, right? China's in a very, very different mode right now. They've been slowing. Um, you know, many people have been focusing on China to start to recover. Um, they, they really haven't shown a, a tremendously robust, you know, recovery right now. They've been tightening policy. That's going to weigh out global growth. China's the second largest economy in the world. They, they, they heavily influence emerging markets. Um, so this is going to be a, this is going to be a factor that we have to start to watch for where in the U.S. and I think in Europe, we're enjoying a nice recovery. Things are going pretty well. But if, if you don't, if China doesn't get on board with this and if China doesn't start to participate in this recovery and start to reflate effectively, then I, I would argue that um, that could be a drag to this global reflationary thesis that many people have, including ourselves. You know, we think that we are going to get global reflation, meaning that asset prices globally are going to start to perform better. Um, but I, I would I would keep a close eye on, on on what's taking place there. So when we think about some of these the spread product and and in the U.S. and I know that you know you and your team manage credit spread credit product as well and. You know, we all know when we look at some of these credit spreads, they're, you know, they're late cycle spreads, but, you know, the economy is still in, let's say, early mid-cycle. Um, you know, some of these corporates are in well into 2005, and high yield is 2017-18. You've had this big rise in, in energy prices. You know, what's your outlook for credit spreads? I mean, are you cautious, or are you, you know, they stay status quo, they don't tighten in, you know, you earn the income, but they could stay here for a long period of time, or do you have a, a yellow flag? Yeah, I, I, I'm in the camp that they that they probably stay here for, for for an extended period of time, and they may tighten, you know, marginally in here. And what we have to think about, let, let's take high yield for example. So high yield spreads today, or as of Friday's close, are at 275 basis points. That's pretty tight. Um, you know, but, you know, they, 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 they have been tighter in the past, but not for long, somewhere around like the 250, 240 mark. But what we also have to recognize is that high yield today is a higher quality index than what it was in the past. It has more double B's in it than it has had in the past. 
So if we adjust, if we credit justice, if we credit quality justice, we would argue that high yield spreads today at 275 could maybe narrow another 10 or 15 basis points from current levels. And that would be, and that would put it at, you know, effectively the types of, 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 of their, you know, of, of their history and maybe could tighten a little bit more, but not much more. Investment grade, on the other hand, um, when we look at that, investment grade spreads are at 81 basis points. I, I think that's um, already through most people's forecasts for the tights for this year. But um, but essentially, I, I think it can maybe tighten just marginally. So really, the way that we're approaching credit is as much much more of an idiosyncratic story. So it's not so much about how are the broader indices going to do. It's really about the sector's the companies um, looking at free cash flows, and that's and that's a big aspect of what we're of what we're looking at right now. These are the companies with pricing power. These are the companies that are going to continue to have um, uh, good margins going forward and and less default risk. And I know in equities, we people look at growth and value, and for the most part, all of fixed income is essentially value for the except for convertibles. Um, they're essentially value. So so we're going to try to look at the deeper valued parts of um, of fixed income, but I, I'm not going to say that we're going to have, um, you know, exemplary returns over the next six months because of just where spreads are and where yields are. But if interest rates stay relatively stable, I still think that owning some fixed income here is still a good ballast to equities because essentially we still expect good GDP. We still expect good earnings. Um, the coupon is there, and I still think you're going to get a stable return per unit of volatility. And that return per unit of volatility is one of the things that we have to think about when we're balancing the portfolio. Um, just overall, between those, if you do, do, do a 60-40 equity versus bonds, you want to look at your potential return per unit of volatility. And I think that you can stabilize and balanced portfolio still with fixed income, but I, I will admit that I do think that you know, many of the valuations of fixed income are, are, are pretty high. So if you had to say that, and again, I mean, but, you know, we have this, you know, there's this, you don't want to lose any cash. We know there's a, lot of, we know there's a tremendous amount of cash on the sidelines, but there's always this, this fear given part of the, you know, somewhat rich valuations, both on the fixed income and, and the equity side. So, in terms of what you're doing with your funds and your team, like how, how, what is the best position do you think for the next six months of the year? Yeah, so 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 we're doing so. So I manage a, a, an unconstrained fund called Global Fixed Income Opportunities, and so there's no index. We don't have to track an index, or we're really just trying to find the best investments across fixed income. Where we think the best opportunity is over the next six months is in emerging markets. And the reason that we say that is all of this fear and talk about inflation, well, for emerging markets, many of these central banks have been actually hiking interest rates. And when we look at real rates, this is your nominal yield minus inflation. So today, for example, if I look at the 10-year, U.S. 10-year real rate, so the nominal 10-year yield minus inflation, the 10-year real rate in the U.S. is minus 87 basis points, minus 87 basis points. So it's a big negative number. Real rates in emerging markets are actually positive. Many of the central banks have been hiking rates. Many of the yields have been rising in emerging markets. Um, and with positive real rates, we're, we're, you know, we're more attracted to that sector from that perspective. But also because we do think that there is, there is this uh, global central bank policy, generally speaking, is relatively supportive for financial assets right now. And we think that 
as we start to move away from some of the inflation risks that are in the developed markets, as we start to find out more that inflation is transitory, that a lot of these EM central banks probably over-tightened at this point and that rates are likely to start to come down. So owning um, local emerging market bonds and even some external emerging market bonds, but mostly in the local emerging market, so even in local currency, um, is going to be attractive. And we think that it's really EM in this respect has actually lagged a lot of the other sectors within um, within fixed income. So we're putting more emphasis there. We're also looking at you know, high yield and the and really the triple C's and single D sectors and, again, being very specific in sector and company um, because we still think that the GDP story is still, uh, is still a very positive story. And we're balancing that. You know, we're balancing that with some um, – with some higher quality IG and even and even U.S. Treasuries, because we don't want to you know just take full on risk. It's a fixed income portfolio, so we want to make sure that we have a good sharp ratio. But also bank loans, CLOs, you know these are you know these are also good places to um, you know, to be at the moment to give you a good cash plus yield. And, and again, you know, spreads have come in, but, um, but 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 we still think that there is some some value to be had there. That's great. And you know, Jim, I again, I, I really really appreciate your time and your insight and this, you know, your conversation and and your outlook. I'm sure will be very valuable to to our FAs and our clients. So, with that said, thanks very much. And Dan, I'm going to turn it over back to you. Well, Leslie and Jim, thank you very much. Very productive, insightful conversation. So, thank you again for joining us here on the UBS Market Moves Podcast Channel. Thank you both. Thank you. Again, today we've been joined by Leslie Falconio, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Jim Karen, Portfolio Manager and Head of Macro on the Global Fixed Income Team with Morgan Stanley Investment Management. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.